This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day today and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on how American women find themselves in an abusive relationship with their partisan lawmakers. While it's no point for Russia, Alexei Duggins tells us how the impact of this year's Eurovision Song Contest will go way beyond bad pop music. Jess Cartner-Morley on the triumph of bare flesh over good taste at the Met Gala. And finally, writer Michael Han on why his midlife crisis has taken the form of tattoos. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, as the US Supreme Court seems poised to scuttle women's rights to a safe abortion, Marina Hyde looks at the denials and rank hypocrisy of some of those involved. With the levers of power once again being pulled by those with no skin in the game, what next for those with an entire uterus in it? Read by Harriet Thorpe. An American girl born this week will have fewer rights than an American girl born in 1973. This is the likely import of the leaked US Supreme Court draft opinion on abortion rights and cause for a huge thank you very much to all those guys who suggested that women marching on Washington in January 2017 were overreacting to the election of Donald Trump. Please make sure to tell women again when they're being over-emotional, even as they sit and watch one of Trump's justice picks scream and sob his way through his own confirmation hearings. In the meantime, resign yourself to yet another quirk of the looking-glass world Trump has created – Of course, of course, women's access to abortion would end up being restricted or removed by the deliberate decisions of a man widely imagined to have personally helped to keep the Manhattan abortion sector afloat for decades. I'm kidding, of course. 
We have absolutely no idea whether abortion services have or haven't ever been accessed by anyone connected with a draft avoider who described avoiding STDs in the 80s as my personal Vietnam. That's an interesting question, Trump replied to the New York Times when asked during the 2016 campaign if he'd ever been involved with a woman who had undergone a termination during their relationship. What's your next question? It must be nice for reproductive rights to be an interesting question you have absolutely no interest in answering. As ever, the levers of power are pulled by those with no skin in the game at the expense of those with an entire uterus in it. Once again, then, a huge bravo to all the extremely rational guys whose conscience simply declined to permit them to vote for Hillary Clinton on the basis that she and Trump were basically the same. Women now facing same old, same old prospects like forced birth and wildly increased medical risks can only thank you for your consciences, for doing the hard intellectual yards so they don't have to. When the news of the Supreme Court draft opinion broke last night, Clinton stated, This decision is a direct assault on the dignity, rights and lives of women not to mention decades of settled law. It will kill and subjugate women, even as a vast majority of Americans think abortion should be legal. What an utter disgrace! We've yet to hear Trump's response. Very, very samey, I imagine. So let's use as placeholder his 2011 statement on the subject. I am pro-life and pro-life people will find out that I will be very loyal to them, just as I am loyal to other people. I would be appointing judges that feel the way I feel. Can't believe he ended up appointing pro-life judges. <laughs> if only there'd been some clue his daffy media cheerleaders could have latched onto. For those whose interest in reproductive rights is not cerebral, but personal and physical, that is, women... There's a mirthless laugh to be had at some of the reaction to the leak. A lot of people are infinitely more horrified by the Supreme Court's information security lapse than they are by the information itself. Please take time to appreciate the angry ranting of right-wing pundits who cannot believe the justice's right to make private decisions has been appallingly violated and that the frickin' leak is the gravest, most unforgivable sin. Their court... Their choice. OK? Out there in the real world beyond, we know from experience abortions will still happen, whether they are outlawed or not. By some accounts, pretty much the same number of abortions. But illegal abortions will mean that many more women will die from the procedure, which is a funny way of being pro-life. But there we are. And, of course... Should this seismic ruling come to pass, it will only be the start of it, with a number of other rights now under threat again. Marriage rights, contraception, racial freedom. You'd need to be a gullible fool or a highly paid star news commentator to think assaults on these aren't all on the table again. During her confirmation hearings, Amy Coney Barrett wouldn't even say if she thought IVF treatment was constitutional which gives you a sense of how deeply backward things could be starting to get. Yet, in some ways, it's the things that actually were said during the confirmation hearings that
that illustrate the rot most clearly, with Trump's new justices saying a lot of stuff that now turns out to have meant about as much as one of his promises. We're looking at a court where justices are no longer particularly different from politicians. Both will say any old shit to get elected or confirmed. In the infrequently lucid moments that peppered his truly deranged performance during his confirmation hearings, Brett Kavanaugh suggested Roe v. Wade was settled law. That has been affirmed down the decades by precedent on precedent. And now look. I wonder what else in his confirmation hearings he might not have been being entirely candid about. For her part, Coney Barrett assured the senators her own personal beliefs were absolutely irrelevant and in no way likely to lead to the undoing of laws. Joking, it's not the law of Amy, it's the law of the American people. It's looking quite like the law of Amy today, all things considered. As the highly predictable majority opinion on Roe v. Wade makes landfall then, spare a thought for supposedly pro-choice Republican Senator Susan Collins, who held the deciding vote on Kavanaugh, and who was apparently absolutely satisfied after two long private meetings with him back in 2018, that Roe was safe in his hands. I'm not naive, she explained. Susan, it seems like you're sensationally, historically, implausibly naive. So here we are again. Today, there is a sense that even restating the arguments feels like something pro-choice women have been doing every day of every decade since they apparently won the argument. We can all understand the political imperative to talk of Roe v. Wade as settled law. But the honest assessment from most pro-choice American women you care to talk to, is that it has never felt truly settled. Women's rights and autonomies should be their inheritance. Instead, they're just another rented thing they could be evicted from or priced out of at any moment. Far from being liberated, American women are in an abusive relationship with partisan lawmakers in which no sense of security is even close to permanent and nothing is given that cannot be taken away at any point. Abortion rights have never been allowed to feel like a life goal achieved. Instead, defending them has remained a hugely consuming way of life for a huge number of women. What a vast, intensely limiting drain on their energy and human potential which is presumably the attraction for those who seek to keep them down. You can be pro-life or pro-living, but you can't be both. That was Through the Trumpian Looking Glass. Forcing women to die from illegal abortions is pro-life by Marina Hyde. Read by Harriet Thorpe. Next. For years, the Eurovision Song Contest has tried to stay out of politics, but this year, things look a little different in Europe. With Russia finally banned from the contest, Alexei Duggins has been talking to the man behind Ukraine's folk-tinged hip-hop entry. Read by Ola Orobayi. In its 66 years of broadcasting, the Eurovision Song Contest has usually provided joy, hilarity, and songs involving puppets of Irish turkeys set up with the noble intention of showing that music could unite Europe. 
It has instead been a glorious failure with knockoff slipknots, tone-deaf, bread-baking grannies and Israeli rappers squawking like chickens all emphasizing, if anything, the impenetrability of a foreign nation's favorite pop music, even when they're singing in English. Just in case you were wondering, after watching the performances, whether the continent's borders were tumbling, outrageously partisan national voting usually confirms that the spirit of intercontinental togetherness is a mirage. Greece and Cyprus give one another douze poids. The Scandinavian countries vote for each other, and poor old Eurosceptic Britain has spent most of the last decade in the bottom three places. This year, however, things might be different. While nations competing in Eurovision have been at war before, bloody border disputes have erupted between Armenia and Azerbaijan for years. While Russia attacked Georgia in 2008 and invaded the Crimea region in 2014, this time the mood against Russia's invasion of Ukraine is resolute. After initially saying that Russia could compete, since the contest was apolitical, the organizers reversed their decision and banned the country. If they had been allowed to enter Eurovision this year, it would have symbolized the support of Russia's actions, says Oleshuk, frontman of this year's Ukrainian entry, folk-tinged hip-hop crew Kalush Orchestra. But now I have the feeling of justice. For Shuk and the rest of his six-man crew, this year's song contest represents a unique opportunity. In the midst of an unprecedented threat to European security, he also sees an unprecedented desire for the continent to bond together. I really believe that unity is important at the moment, he explains via Zoom, from the hotel room he's staying in during a pre-contest promotional tour of Israel. Our song has managed to unite so many Ukrainians, and I hope that it will unite Europeans and maybe the whole world. Back in February, Shuk came second in his country's Eurovision selection process with Stefania, a musical tribute to his mother. Then, in a surprise twist, following the withdrawal of the first-placed act, due to an alleged visit to the Russian-occupied region of Crimea, he found out he was going to represent Ukraine in this year's competition, which takes place in Turin, Italy, at which point Russia invaded his nation. His song was adopted by his compatriots as a homage to their motherland, and now it soundtracks about 150,000 TikTok clips, from videos of worldwide Stand With Ukraine protests to footage of rocket launchers being fired from buildings. The groundswell of support around the act has seen the Ukrainian government grant them a special permit to travel to Italy, despite initial fears they would have to perform via video link from a secure bunker as a result of laws preventing young men from leaving the country. Kalash are now the overwhelming favourite to win this year's competition, with the majority of the continent looking set to use their vote to make a statement about Russia's aggression. It gives me a good feeling. It's a nice thing to know, says Shuk. Not that he thinks the Russian invasion is entirely responsible for his entry's popularity. Even before the war, our song was in the top five, according to the bookies. This situation that has happened may have influenced the way that we have raised the first position in the odds. But the fact is that we have a very good song. A great song, in fact. 
This is unprecedented territory for a contest that has previously had an extremely uneasy relationship with inter-European politics. For years, Eurovision's organizers, the European Broadcasting Union, the EBU, have maintained that it is an intrinsically anti-political spectacle and have repeatedly stepped in to stifle the expression of opinions that challenge such a claim. With the benefit of hindsight, it's notable that these were often protest songs about Russian hostility towards its neighbours. The EBU banned the 2009 Georgia entry, We Don't Want to Put In, for its less-than-subtle dig at Russia's then-Prime Minister following the Russo-Georgian War. It had anti-booing technology installed to prevent the worldwide audience hearing the crowd's protests against Russia's 2015 entrant following the Crimean invasion. And while in 2016 it allowed Ukraine to enter a controversial competition-winning song about Russia's deportation of the Crimean Tatar population in the Second World War, the broadcasters were quick to condemn Ukraine as host the following year, when the country stopped the Russian contestant, Yulia Samoylova, from travelling to the final in 2017 due to claims she had illegally entered Crimea, which the BBC's Moscow correspondent suggested was possibly deliberate Russian provocation, or precisely what Moscow wanted when it chose Samoylova knowing she had travelled to Crimea. It also puts Kalosh Orchestra in a difficult position when it comes to articulating their feelings about their country's plight. Just to travel to Eurovision this year, Shuk has had to step away from the 35-person volunteering organisation he set up to provide access to safe accommodation, transport and medicine for refugees. Kalosh Orchestra have had to find a replacement for a band member who is fighting in the Kiev Defense Forces. But the band are driven by feelings that they had an important mission to raise awareness for their country. A feeling Shuk has turned into something that sounds incredibly like a continent-rousing post-Eurovision acceptance speech. I have a message that I would like to deliver, Shuk says. There are people who may see this conflict as a kind of a war film, something that is really far away and something that cannot happen to them. But it has already happened to us. We didn't believe it beforehand, but it has actually happened, he urges passionately. When you wake up every morning to the sound of explosions, when you wake up without being sure if your girlfriend or family are alive, this is scary, really scary. So I would like to urge everyone to support Ukraine, To find the time to think about what they can do to help Ukraine in this situation. If everyone in the whole world does what they can, then we can end this war much sooner and prevent it happening again in another country. Nonetheless, even if Ukraine were to win, Shuk's not sure that the rules around overtly political statements would ever allow him to actually say these words. We want to avoid any kind of politicization. And that is why we would first of all discuss it with the team before doing anything, he explains. Another big question lies around what the distribution of votes might look like this year in a continent that's being swept by a new spirit of collaboration 
might we see a shake-up of the entrenched system of douze poids allocation? Could there be an end to the Scandi, Balkan and ex-Soviet voting blocs? Apparently so, given the UK's prospects. We look set to finish in the top 10 for the first time in 13 years, after having been the bottom place nation for the last two. Sam Ryder, the TikTok star who is this year's entry, is currently fourth favourite to win, hopefully bringing an end to the years of UK complaints about political voting by the likes of ex-contestant Simon Webb, who explained his sluggish pop Stomper's 11th place finish in 2011 with It's often not really about the song, but who your neighbours are. There is, of course, a limit. It might be a bit much to expect Turkey and Greece to end the culture war they've been fighting over ownership of Cyprus via the Eurovision voting board for four decades. And given that in 2009, Azerbaijani state police rounded up citizens who had voted for Armenia, it seems unlikely that every country's citizens will be voting with their musical taste alone. But for Shuk, there's a feeling that this contest might represent a once-in-a-generation chance to rethink petty European rivalries and for the continent to come together through song like never before. For Ukraine, this is the most important year ever for Eurovision. And I would really like it to be true for the whole world as well, he says, as he prepares to end a Zoom call. That's why we're bringing the world a message I would put in one word. Love. It's a lovely reminder of the competition's importance, but one that's not surprising. After all, in the middle of a country torn apart by war, the feeling that they're backed by their neighbours might be the most important thing they could possibly dream of. Well, almost. Most of all, we would like to have a victory at the main front line, but at this moment, any victory is meaningful and important. Luckily, Eurovision voters can make at least one of these things happen this year. That was score settling, boost suppression and voter arrests. Will this be the most electric Eurovision ever? By Alexi Duggins. Read by Ola Orabayi. We'll be back after this short break. 
Welcome back to Weekend. Now, for years, the Met Gala has been US fashion's biggest night of the year. But as the designer Tom Ford has long lamented, instead of being about beautiful clothes, the Met Gala is now much more focused on popular culture. It's fancy dress over elegance, sensation over sophistication. Jess Cartner Morley tells us about this year's celebrity looks. Read by Harriet Thorpe. This was the night the Met Gala brought Marilyn Monroe back from the dead. If any lingering doubts remained about the power of the night as a force in American popular culture, they were silenced when Kim Kardashian stepped onto the red carpet wearing the very dress which Monroe wore to sing Happy Birthday to JFK in 1962. Unworn for the intervening 60 years, the dress was fashion as holy relic, fashion as green screen magic, fashion as skin-to-skin contact between screen goddesses of two very different centuries. Reports of the demise of dressing up have turned out to be greatly exaggerated. The Met Gala is fashion's biggest night of the year. Returning to the traditional first Monday in May slot on the social calendar for the first time in three years, this party made it abundantly clear that the fashion world is not remotely chastened, dimmed or otherwise humbled by the pandemic. From Katy Perry as a hamburger to Rihanna as the Pope, the party has given us the most unforgettable celebrity looks of the last decade and this year's event showed no signs of slowing down. Modern party dressing trailblazed by the Met is dressing up as fancy dress rather than dressing up as an aspiration to elegance. The little black dress that used to be the uniform of smart parties was nowhere to be seen. Fashion's biggest night of the year is now entirely about looking spectacular rather than looking stylish. Kylie Jenner and Nicki Minaj both wore baseball caps, white and worn backwards with a veil to complement Jenna's off-white wedding dress, in black leather to match the leggings worn by Nicki Minaj. Jessie Buckley, in a Scaparelli suit, wore a fake moustache. Gigi Hadid wore a burgundy latex bodysuit under a vast puffer jacket. Gucci designer Alessandro Michaela and Jared Leto came as identical twins, down to their red satin bow ties and crystal hair barrettes. Irina Shaikh wore a black leather biker jacket, and Gwen Stefani chose a lime green bra top. Chic is dead, and social media has blown good taste out of the water. Much is made of the ultra-exclusive invite list of the Met Gala, where each golden ticket comes at a price of £28,000. But what happens inside the party is entirely beside the point. The real party happens on Instagram, And everyone is invited. Kim Kardashian's 300 million followers saw her in Marilyn's dress before her tablemates did. I miss the days when people just wore beautiful clothes, laments Tom Ford in Anna, Amy O'Dell's new biography of Anna Winter. Winter, the queen of the Met Gala, oversees the night from a vantage point at the top of the steps outside the Metropolitan Museum of Art acknowledging the crowds with an occasional wave, as if from a Buckingham Palace balcony. Ford, who attended Monday night's party in classic evening dress, complete with white tie and white carnation buttonhole, 
complains that the Met has turned into a costume party. It used to be very chic people wearing beautiful clothes going to an exhibition about the 18th century. You didn't have to look like the 18th century. You didn't have to dress like a hamburger. You didn't have to arrive in a van where you were standing up because you couldn't sit down because you wore a chandelier. The Met has blasted an arcane and elitist old world order out of the water. Where once the pecking order at New York's elite charity event was determined by who had the most dazzling tiara in their family vault, the iconography of the modern Met Gala is entirely democratic. The references are to pop culture. There are hamburgers, as per Ford's thinly veiled swipe at Katy Perry. Marilyn Monroe reincarnated by Kim Kardashian. The Statue of Liberty, channelled by Blake Lively in a dress, which changed colour from copper to blue as she walked up the steps. The Manhattan skyline, as mapped out in crystals on Alicia Keys' Ralph Lauren cape. These are references which belong to everyone. But the New World Order comes with toxic hierarchies of its own. Beneath the Halloween-adjacent silliness, the pursuit of impossible levels of physical perfection is a deadly serious business. Kim Kardashian revealed that because Monroe's dress was a historical artefact and could not be altered, she lost 16 pounds in three weeks to fit into it. Cara Delevingne, taking the dress code of gilded glamour literally, removed the top half of her Dior morning suit on the red carpet to reveal nothing but gold body paint with matching nipple covers. Emily Ratajkowski similarly chose vintage Versace, first seen on the catwalk in 1992, made entirely of beads and chains above the waist without even a wisp of fabric. The approval of the arbiters of good taste has been replaced by social media's rapacious appetite for bare flesh. This is a new world order for sure. Whether it represents progress is up for debate. But while All Around played the red carpet for maximum laughs, one supermodel flew the flag for quietly subversive British style. In a floor-length black gown by Burberry, accessorised with old-school understatement, with sheer black tights, heeled sandals and a red lip, Kate Moss, once the naughtiest girl in fashion, who scandalised the industry by taking cocaine in 2005, and then, more shockingly, wearing a top shop dress to the Met Gala the following year, did what few now dare to do and wore a little black dress. Could Chic be the next punk? That was More Fancy Dressed Than Elegance Has Social Media Killed Good Taste at the Met Gala? by Jess Cartner Morley. Read by Harriet Thorpe. Finally, when he turned 52, the writer Michael Han lost a lot of weight and began enjoying the way he looked for the first time. And for his next step, after years of loudly dismissing other people's tattoos, he went and got himself inked. Read by Ola Oribayi. I had a new anxiety dream the other night. For a few years, inexplicably, my anxiety dreams have been about Ray Davis of the Kinks, you wouldn't believe the stress of finding him the perfect top polo neck before he goes on TV. The other week, though, I had a new one. I imagined the tattoo was sliding down my arm from my shoulder to my hand, 
until slipping off completely and leaving a muddy, inky stain on the sheet. I had my first tattoo last October, aged 52. A large, full-color rendering of a bird, a red kite, on my upper left arm. For years, I had been one of those tutting inkphobes who didn't understand why anyone would mutilate themselves. I would have agreed with a recent article in the Times by Melanie Phillips, in which she described tattoos as a kind of desecration, the corruption of something that is pure, precious, and the very quintessence of integrity. Maybe not in those words, perhaps. I'd have just called them ugly. But the thought would have been the same. But something changed in middle age. Call it a midlife crisis if you want. My sister-in-law calls it a manopause. But at least it was cheaper and safer than buying a Ferrari. My wife had been following tattooists on Instagram for a while because she fancied getting ink herself. She would come in often and approvingly on footballers' arm designs, ignoring the slide rule pass that put the striker in on goal. And though I had loudly and frequently dismissed tattoos, I'd started looking too, having noticed other people's, not in any specific way, I had no tattoo role models, and appreciated them, particularly nature-based ones. I saw the beauty in many, though not all. There are lots of tattoos I don't like, and I promise never to have only God can judge me, tattooed on my throat. But enough that I started to wonder how I would look with ink. Something else happened last year, though, without which I wouldn't have made the step. I lost quite a lot of weight. I am not and will never be felt. I will always be more comfortable with clothes that have an X on the size label, but at least I can stick to one X these days. I got rid of my belly. And some of my chins, my trousers became dramatically looser and I had to punch new holes in my belt. For the first time, I started to be pleased with the way I looked. I was able to buy nice clothes because nice clothes actually fit me. After the weight loss and the clothes, I wanted to carry on looking different from the schlub I had been. And tattoos seemed the next step. They were not armor, not protection. They were projection. For the middle-aged, tattoos seem not to be whims. They are markers of change, commemorations of events. Rebecca Vincent, whose beautiful floral line drawings have made her something of a superstar in the tattooing world, a waiting list of a year, 171,000 Instagram followers, sees a lot of middle-aged women at her London studio. I should write a memoir with the stories I've heard, she says. People open up because they're in a vulnerable place. And a lot of the time, the first tattoo has a significant reason. Sometimes they are flowers to mark a birth. Sometimes they mark a loss, a memorial tattoo. When you start getting them, they are so significant. But after two or three tattoos, it becomes, ah, just another one. Sometimes the very insignificance counts. Beverly Manson, 76. A children's book illustrator got her first ink in her 70s after meeting the heavily tattooed man who would become her third husband. She, too, had not been much of a fan until she saw her husband naked. The first time he and I got our kit off, I was shocked, she says. But it's so aesthetically interesting. His tattoos were random. She mentions the words special fried rice, 
and the relevant Chinese script inked on his leg, and she decided to follow suit, with a lion heart on the front of her left shoulder. But don't read too much into it, she says. She deliberately avoided having something connected to her art. Her specialism is drawing fairies. The idea of having something meaningful didn't sit well. Murray Chalmers, a 62-year-old veteran of music PR, started getting inked at 59. Friends inquired if he might regret it when he was older. Two relationships had ended, one after the other. He had moved back home to Scotland, and like me, he wanted to mark change in his life. I had spent a lot of my youth experimenting with clothes and fashion, and they are quite important, but they are ephemeral. They are transient. Tattoos are there for good. As they did with me, they changed the way he saw himself. Sometimes I wake up and see my arms, and I can't believe it's me. The tattoos have become a document joining up different parts of my life. It's an emotional commitment, as well as a physical one. I like to say I carefully researched everything before going under the gun. I didn't. (laughs) There's a tattoo studio called Flaming 8, round the corner from my home. I googled it, and saw Time Out had recommended it as one of London's best studios. I went in for a consultation with one of their artists, Delphrane, in October. We went through a selection of photos, from which he would draw a stencil, We discussed placement. Good studios are reluctant to give first time as something that can't be covered up with clothing. And price. And I was told to have a good breakfast before coming in a couple of weeks later. Dell warned me that the first tattoo would hurt. It was large. It was color. It would take up to five hours and it would be painful. To be honest, it really wasn't. Just a little uncomfortable. It turns out, forgive me for simplifying the science, that those of us blessed with ginger hair feel less skin pain than the rest of you. Something to do with pigmentation, but you're better off asking a dermatologist. I was warned it would itch like hell as it healed. Remember, a fresh tattoo is an open wound is not a reassuring sentence, but didn't itch either. My wife, who had just had her first tattoo of Ivy tumbling down her shoulder reports the itching is infernal. A week later, I was back for my second tattoo, then early this year for a third and a fourth one, each time with Dale. After the second tattoo, a friend had said, no one gets two tattoos. They have one or they don't stop. Well, we'll see how far it goes. I like the symmetry of two on each arm, but having tattoos is an addictive feeling. Not the inking itself, which is neither here nor there to me, but seeing the ink on my skin, goodness knows it's not cheap though, which might be the main barrier to my keeping on. Four tattoos is already into four figures, and I look at people covered in ink and wonder how the hell they could afford it. What I have on my body does not define me, but each piece represents some small part of my world. My first piece was the red kite with a wingspan of around 20 centimeters. I love red kites. It's not that they symbolize the freedom to be on the wing, unencumbered by society or anything like that. I just love them and I'm fascinated by them. The third was a beautiful bear tree. One I walked past on Hampstead Heath several times a week and had photographed. I had a tiny rendering of my cat put into a hole in a trunk 
so she is on my skin forever, on my upper right arm. The fourth was four oak leaves, one for each member of our family on the inside of my lower left arm. The second is the most personal, perhaps, and the hardest to explain without sounding like an idiot. It's a small black sheep, a detail from the cover of the record, Out of Step, by the hardcore punk band Minor Threat. I'm not a huge devotee of hardcore. I like it more than the average, but that's not hard. Minor Threats are not my favourite band, and Out of Step is not my favourite song of theirs. It's a defiant yawp of pride about being straight edge. I don't drink, don't smoke, don't fuck. At least I can fucking think. And the only time I was straight edge was when abstinence wasn't a lifestyle choice, but the result of being a teenager. What's more, as a straight, white, middle-aged, middle-class man, I'm about as in-step with the world as anyone could be. But I loved Minor Threat's insane dedication to personal liberation through rock music, and the moments when I feel least trapped by my own self-consciousness have come through rock and roll. The times when I dance and sing and talk to strangers and come home much drunker than I really should. That little black sheep represents those moments when I can be the version of myself I enjoy most. I suppose all four tattoos do in some way, but that one matters to me more. What Melanie Phillips didn't understand is that while, yes, it is nicer if other people like one's tattoos, that's absolutely not the point of them. My tattoos make me feel physically confident for the first time in my life. I don't mean I cowered away from people. I'm six foot three inches and I know my physical presence is big, but that I was embarrassed by being an overweight ginger lummox. <laughs> tattoos changed that. In a huge and significant way. I do not actually care what other people think of them. My 21-year-old daughter hates them and calls them those marks on your arms, which makes me laugh. Because they're not for anyone else. They're for me. And I love them. That was I Got Hooked on Tattoos at 52. Is this a midlife crisis or a new me? By Michael Han. Read by Ola Orabayi. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Ola Orabayi and Harriet Thorpe and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by Ian Chambers. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers this week were Danielle Stevens and Max Anderson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. Coming soon, a four-part investigative series. A new civil rights division has been set up in New Orleans. Their task? To re-examine thousands of cases and work out whether those people should still be in prison. This six-month investigation takes you into the heart of the Deep South and asks, is it possible to right the wrongs of the past? 
Listen to The Division New Orleans from this Friday, 6th of May and across the weekend on Today in Focus. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 